If chocolate is your weakness, the real chocolate decadence of Flava Naturals Performance Chocolate can be your strength. I've been searching high and low for cocoa products that deliver meaningful amounts of healthful flavanols with great flavor and minimal sugar. So I'm thrilled to have found Flava Naturals. Extensive research demonstrates the remarkable benefits of daily cocoa flavanols on brain and heart function, including a recent Harvard study showing a 27% reduction in cardiovascular death. But you need to eat five or more ordinary dark chocolate bars every day to match the flavanols consumed in most of these studies. Flava Naturals Performance Dark Chocolate Cocoa Powder and beverages deliver five to nine times the flavanols of typical dark chocolate. Their secret is sourcing premium, high flavanol cocoa beans and processing them naturally. The result is decadent dark chocolate with the flavanol levels needed to fuel brain and cardio performance. I use it every day. For more information and to order, just go to flavanaturals.com. That's flavanaturals.com. Welcome to today's Intelligent Medicine Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Ronald Hoffman, a podcast that I'm very much looking forward to because we have a special guest. Uh, he's in the news these days. He's Dr. Peter McCullough. Dr. McCullough is an internist, cardiologist, epidemiologist, and he's been in the forefront of criticism of our current response to COVID, uh, our ways of treating it, and also the inordinate emphasis on vaccines and high-tech pharmaceutical fixes. And uh, at the beginning of 2020, Dr. Peter McCullough was a highly regarded practicing physician, program director, teacher, and clinical investigator at a major academic medical center in Dallas, Texas. And then COVID hit, and he was in the trenches. And it's through his experience uh, with patients uh, that he began to take a critical view of how we're dealing with the pandemic. So without further ado, uh, welcome, Dr. McCullough. Thanks very much for joining us. Well, thanks for having me. It's my great pleasure. And, you know, you've been on TV. Many people have seen you. Many people have seen you on social media, although you've been throttled down uh, and banned uh, in many quarters. Uh, but you've also made your way to uh, the Senate to testify uh, on behalf of uh other ways of coping with the pandemic and, and criticizing our pandemic response. So, so give us a little background. Uh, you uh, are highly qualified. You're uh, a professor uh, of medicine, uh, and uh, you, uh, in the beginning of the pandemic, uh, came to some different conclusions than did many mainstream physicians and and uh, health uh, health officials. It's true. You know, I can't speak for other physicians, um, but I can always I can uh, speak for myself, and that's for sure. And and my perspectives on this is that the illness SARS-CoV-2 infection and then the syndrome COVID-19 uh, are really uh, illnesses that, like all other illnesses, deserve a uh, a proper and responsible um, medical response. And so the first principle is that there's a duty to treat. When there's a potentially life-threatening illness, there is a duty to treat. 
And uh, that duty to treat existed from the very beginning. Uh, it didn't, um, uh, it, 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 there was nothing about COVID-19 that was any different than a serious pneumococcal pneumonia or a staphylococcal pneumonia or a severe case of influenza that there's a duty to treat. That's very, very important. Now, that view of duty to treat should not be controversial. And in my view, it's not controversial. What is controversial is doctors who said there are there is no duty to treat and that they were uh, have felt no obligation to treat COVID-19. They felt uh, no duty to take care of their patients. They felt no duty to follow up to see if they were getting better or worse. And then having over 10 million Americans hospitalized and over a million Americans die because of doctors failing in their duty to treat. I think that's what's controversial, not my position. My position is one of uh, of, of being uh, reasonable, responsible, and I did the best I could in treating patients. And on top of that, I did uh, the research to identify the treatment pathways. I, I did the best I could in demonstrating it in data and publishing it that the methods worked. But it was always a duty to treat, and it was shocking to me that doctors large numbers of doctors took such a controversial position. Well, indeed, indeed, there were there were personal and professional repercussions for you uh, when you stuck your neck out and advocated for uh, controversial treatments like early on hydroxychloroquine, uh, ivermectin subsequently, uh, which admittedly are controversial, uh, yet there's evidence to suggest that uh, in the absence of definitive treatments, uh, that they provided an edge for patients who were uh, going down the tubes with COVID. You know, I disagree with that. Um, the standard of care, the community standard of care is not controversial. The community standard of care is what doctors find useful and helpful in treating patients with a condition. And in some rare diseases, there may be one doctor in a community who is the standard of care. It's common in uh, gynecologic oncology and allergy and others. I had a patient the other day I saw by telemedicine, and they lived in a part of California, they needed a certain cardiology specialist. And I looked up, and there was two doctors there, and they those doctors are the standard of care for that part of California. So the standard of care was established by the very first doctor who tried to treat COVID-19 as an outpatient, and then others. And they initially found hydroxychloroquine, azithromycin, uh, certain nutraceuticals, uh, prednisone, very importantly prednisone, budesonide colchicine, aspirin, and then anticoagulants, they found that these were useful. And then later on, uh, uh, <clears throat> uh, ivermectin uh, was found to be useful. And then later on after that, uh, Paxlovid and Molnipiravir. None of that's controversial. And so I think the problem is the labeling of controversial. What's controversial is for a doctor to have patients in their practice getting sick with COVID-19 and saying, you know, I'm going to do none of that. Mm -hmm. I am not going to do anything. And I am going to allow that patient to get progressively sicker and then be hospitalized and die. That's what's controversial, not hydroxychloroquine. It's the non-treatment of patients. It's therapeutic nihilism for the first time in medicine. Remember, we, we've used different drugs to handle different problems forever and ever. So there's nothing controversial about any of the drugs I mentioned. But what is controversial is broad-scale therapeutic nihilism. 
Well, with a new disease, you really need a kind of a innovative and seat of the pants uh, approach. And it was kind of an all hands on deck moment uh, in 2020 when COVID exploded. And, uh, you know, as you say, many doctors were saying, look, go home and, you know, if you're in trouble and you can't breathe, you know, come to the hospital and we'll put you on a ventilator. Uh, short of that, uh, you employed uh, many measures and you wrote up protocols uh, and yet you were subject, you were reviled for doing so. How, how do you account for that? I was never reviled by anyone of any medical standing or or ever reviled by any physician uh, of any note. So uh, what I saw in social media was from from uh, basically anonymous, uncredentialed <clears throat> fact checkers. It's interesting. I never had a single doctor call me up of any medical standing and say, boy, I disagree with your viewpoint, or let's have a discussion never happened it, it's the most interesting thing so what happened is doctors took a controversial position for the first time in medicine and they failed to treat patients intentionally that was was controversial and so the use of the word controversial is actually just being applied in the wrong direction it's not against drugs using doctors using drugs in combination and having things well laid out you know, there was a series of U.S. Senate hearings to make this abundantly clear. The first one was on corticosteroids, which I adopted into my clinical practice about the time of the U.S. Senate hearings. <clears throat> the second one was about um, hydroxychloroquine and, and ivermectin, uh, uh, anticoagulants, corticosteroids, <coughs> the integrated approach. Uh, the third one uh, was uh, additionally on that and then on the, the failure of uh, lockdowns and social distancing. I mean, these Senate hearings really memorialize everything. So there's nothing about it that's controversial. It was just getting information out to the public. Indeed. And and the book, uh, which beautifully summarizes uh, your early efforts and struggles, uh, The Courage to Face COVID-19, Preventing Hospitalization and Death While Battling the Biopharmaceutical Complex, uh, the implication is that uh, it was kind of an all-or-nothing approach. Uh, we were going to wait until the advent of these miraculous vaccines uh, and you know, pharmaceutical drugs, uh, magic bullet antivirals, which were going to deliver us from the pandemic. But uh, the message was hold off on these what were termed speculative treatments, but actually are, are tried and true in medical practice. You utilize them many years uh, prior to the advent of COVID, sensible approaches. Uh, and so so what ended up happening is there was this big gap until these vaccines appeared to deliver us from the pandemic. It's true. I just give one final opinion on the drugs. <clears throat> you may be talking to the person who has the broadest experience in using the range of drugs. So I've used all the antivirals, uh, outpatient antivirals, I used uh, many different types of corticosteroids. And uh, certainly all the drugs that are proven in randomized trials to reduce hospitalization and death, and that would be colchicine and budesonide, hydroxychloroquine, ivermectin, uh, paclovoid, molnipiravir, I've used them all. Um, I, I can tell you, I think the two most dynamic drugs, the drugs that really make patients feel better, reduce the intensity and duration of symptoms, uh, they're not, they're not the only two drugs <clears throat> we can use to treat the syndrome. We need about four to six drugs to treat the illness. But the two most dynamic, uh, I believe, are ivermectin and prednisone. And I think they're equally, uh, dynamic in terms of, 
how patients feel. There has been an inordinate um, emphasis on viral replication. Everything from remdesivir to hydroxychloroquine, ivermectin, uh, uh, Paclovoid, Molnupiravir. Well, you know, the virus is replicating, but what's really driving the symptoms is inflammation, cytokine storm, and that microthrombosis. And so, uh, so to me, from the very beginning, and I said this in my writings and clinically, I said this was never going to be a single drug to treat this illness. And most complicated infections that are fatal, we don't rely on single drugs. Mm-hmm. We don't even do that for a staph infection. We don't do that for influenza. We don't do that for shingles. So, I mean, to me, it's again, it's controversial, and I would say ludicrous for a doctor to think that they could own, they could treat uh, this illness with um, Paxavoid alone, for instance. It's controversial and ludicrous because it's so out of the range of normal medical care for uh, that we use for other problems. What, are, what were your views on uh, the lockdowns? Uh, do you think that uh, the lockdowns? Uh, were justified. Uh, you know, you, you've made some uh, comments about how the very people who really were at most risk uh, were the least protected, and yet the whole country came to a standstill. Uh, <clears throat> yeah, the um, <coughs> sorry, the um, the seminal, the landmark things that happened in 2020 was. Uh, the, um, I believe it was May 2020 Senate hearings on steroids, November 2020 and December 2020 on combination treatment. Those were absolutely seminal events. The paper teaching doctors how to treat COVID that I published in the American Journal of Medicine in August of 2020. And then the follow up in December of 2020, the reviews in cardiovascular medicine, those are seminal events. Um, I, I, in October to seminal events happen, and they were the publication of the Association of American Physician Treatment Home Treatment Guide, so there were, there was a patient-doctor guide prevented, presented, that was a, a major advance, and then in October of 2020 was the Great Barrington Declaration, which mm-hmm. addressed the issue of lockdowns, and there, it was based on data, and <clears throat> the authors were Jay Bhattacharya from Stanford, Martin Kolda from Harvard, and Sunitra Gupta from Oxford, and the Great Barrington p- provided a, a, a roadmap that basically said protect the seniors who are at high risk and then everyone else go about the business as as usual. And so the mistakes that our government agencies, our health systems, our big companies in the United States, our doctors, is that they didn't pay attention to any of those seminal events. They were oblivious to these critical events. You can't be more up front and center when you're having Senate hearings on this. So to basically ignore all of these major advancements, what our federal agencies did and our health systems and large companies and doctors is they remained in lockdown and they failed to treat patients and they allowed patients to be hospitalized and die. And the lockdowns um, uh, had no impact on the spread of the virus. And social distancing didn't and masks didn't. The only thing that made a difference that reduced the risk of hospitalization and death was treatment. So the, the very doctors who you mentioned, the authors of the Great Barrington Declaration, uh, yourself uh, and other doctors on the front lines of medicine, uh, have uh, endured vituperation and uh, professional consequences. Uh, you uh, had prestigious posts uh, at uh, Texas A&M and Texas Christian University. 
and the University of North Texas Schools of Medicine. And you had uh, links to uh, pharmaceutical companies, the National Institutes of Health, medical society positions, and there were punitive actions that were taken against you and others. Yeah, those sequence of events are, are in the book, uh, Courage to Face COVID-19, I believe under the chapter called The Stripping. And it's just the stripping of things. So in 2020, what I did is I organized my entire research team and my research career towards COVID-19. I recognized an unmet, I got a large research grant. I got an FDA um, <coughs> investigation on drug application. I started treating and preventing COVID-19. I showed that the method worked. I testified in the U.S. Senate. I participated in creating the first home treatment guide. I brought a ton of business to my medical center. All I did was positive things in 2020. And as a reward for that, early in 2021, before uh, the bad news came out on the vaccines, I was notified that my contract was not going to renew. But without due process followed in that sequence of events, the health system had due process. They had a board vote they needed to take, and none of that was done. And then there was a sequence of events where without due process, without faculty senate, without courtesy phone call, I was stripped of two professorships. That's actually not allowed in the university environment. There always is a faculty senate. There always is some discussion mm -hmm. if, if there's uh, something. Then I was stripped from NIH committees, pharmaceutical committees. I was stripped of two editorships of journals. And again, no courtesy phone call, no reason given for it happening. And most things were done by certified letter or email. Why this... Uh, uh intemperate response to a doctor who's earnestly trying with the tools at hand to address patients who are very sick. I mean, you, it wasn't merely you were opining on social media about ways to treat. You were on the in the trenches, uh, on the front lines. Well, I was treating patients. I was gaining clinical experience. I was communicating with others who were gaining even more clinical experience. We were finding success in our methods. We we're keeping our patients out of the hospital properly publishing in the journals. Uh, initially, I wasn't active on social media at all. Um, but even when I developed COVID-19 myself, and I, I was in an FDA-approved multi-drug protocol, and I responded, I did a video of just going jogging. I felt great. Uh, that was immediately struck down off YouTube. Mm -hmm. So uh, if you ask me what my interpretation is, <clears throat> my interpretation is that there is a worldwide operation going on. And the worldwide operation involves the active suppression of treatment for COVID-19, of early treatment. And there is a sub, there is a um, undermining of hospital treatments going on that is intentionally promoting fear, suffering, hospitalization, and death in order to promote the mass vaccination program for the world. And any doctor that stands up for early treatment or even advancing treatment in the hospital and any doctor that stands to question vaccine safety and efficacy in this worldwide government operation, if you will, will be crushed. That's my interpretation. Indeed. And what about the, the lack of emphasis? I know you're a believer in, in medical intervention. It's not like you're a nihilist as you said earlier about utilizing and wielding drugs to treat COVID. You're uh, a physician uh, and you're well aware of the potential benefits of pharmaceutical drugs. But what about the lack of emphasis on uh, non-pharmacological methods of dealing with COVID, preventive methods, uh, ways of reducing 
the comorbidities that uh, make that patient go down the slippery slide to intubation and death. I never ignored them as a doctor, and no good doctor uh, should have ignored them. <clears throat> and it's important, losing weight, getting fit, having optimal control of diabetes, <clears throat> of uh, nutraceutical supplementation. We learned out that, that vitamin D was critically important. Uh, vitamin D as a preventive measure, higher doses of vitamin D in acute treatment, in acute treatment, zinc, vitamin D, vitamin C, quercetin. The use of over-the-counter famotidine has an antiviral effect. Uh, and, and wonderful analyses support everything that I've just said. Probably the single greatest advance was the use of uh, nasal virucidal sprays and washes, mm-hmm. including dilute povidone iodine, dilute hydrogen peroxide, colloidal silver, uh, xylitol, <clears throat> all of these, uh, ozone, all of these uh, had effects. But even those were suppressed. Those were actively suppressed. In our book, we've actually added a chapter about the active government suppression mm-hmm. of even nasal virucidal therapies. Mm-hmm. And the companies were receiving uh, FDA warning letters and uh, they, they were prompted uh, legal fees and, and legal claims and and other companies were basically dissuaded from uh, having uh, even market presence on nasal washes that could help patients. There's 12 clinical studies, three large randomized trials are very effective. I utilize that every day in my practice. Uh, even monoclonal antibodies developed through Operation Warp Speed. You'd think that there would be billboards all over the place, wayfinding, uh, ways for our seniors to get these monoclonal antibodies. And it was, and they've been, they were pre-purchased in large numbers, enough to, to treat every single American in the United States as a monoclonal antibody. Instead, there were shortages, supply chain problems, never could find them. They were pulled off the market because of theoretical reasons they wouldn't cover a mutated strain. Isn't it interesting that a monoclonal antibody pulled off the market for theoretical reasons it wouldn't uh, cover a new strain of the virus, but the vaccines were never pulled off the market mm. because of that theoretical concern. Right. When you talk and about so lack of efficacy, I mean, if, if we're concerned about efficacy, right. uh, they've told the line about the efficacy of the vaccines, and yet now uh, they're casting doubt on the efficacy of monoclonal antibodies. Uh, but, but not sure why they're playing single, favorites. Right. Every single clinical trial shows the monoclonal antibodies are safe and effective, and they had a large treatment effect. And I've been a steadfast proponent of using this new form of technology in our high-risk seniors. Sadly, in a recent paper by Huang and colleagues, only 15% of people who are sick enough to be hospitalized receive monoclonal antibodies. If they got monoclonal antibodies before the hospital, they actually survived the hospital and didn't end up on the ventilator. But 85% of patients were denied monoclonal antibodies, hospitalized, and did poorly. Some Mm -hmm. died. So the suppression of early treatment was global. It was against all available, generically available drugs. It was against the monoclonal antibodies, nasovirucidal washes, preventive measures that you've mentioned. Do you know our government has never had any type of public health messaging on preventive measures or how to treat COVID-19 at home to avoid hospitalization and death? Our departments of community health never had seminars. Our medical schools and health systems never did. And, and yet billions of dollars have been expended to exhort people to take vaccines and boosters and, you know, a lot of advertising time on radio, TV, and print, and, uh, and, and so and, on. Yeah, so, so, so the entities that were either being actively and willfully blind to early treatment 
or actively suppressing early treatment, all the entities I mentioned, they're the same ones that were absolutely incessant on promoting the vaccines from the very beginning, including advertisement of the vaccines on pharmacy phone trees before the vaccines were even through clinical trials. Mm -hmm. We didn't even know if they worked or not. And in Dallas, I actually recorded one one day that they were already advertising on Walgreens and CVS phone trees, and they weren't even out of clinical trials. Hmm. Do you know Clay Jenkins, who's a county judge here in Dallas, uh, when he had the initial lockdown orders, he said he said uh, that these will be in effect until we have a vaccine. Wow. Like, as if, how does he know we're going to have a vaccine? Right. You see, so from the very beginning, there appeared to be some type of playbook in this operation where treatment was going to be suppressed or ignored, even inpatient treatment. Do you know advances in inpatient treatment have never been uh, announced or summarized in any type of public fact? So people can even know what's going on in the hospital. Do you know there are no centers of excellence for COVID-19? No, no hospital in the United States claims to be any good at treating COVID-19. U.S. News and World Report doesn't have rankings of the best mm-hmm. COVID hospitals. There are no innovative protocols above the very nihilistic and baseline protocol that the NIH gives. And and this is, here's a stunning observation. Do you know in, in November of 2020, the World Health Organization completed the largest trial in remdesivir, and they synthesized all the data. They held a major meeting. They invited ethicists and scientists, critical care doctors. They concluded remdesivir should not be used in the hospital. Mm-hmm. should not be used in the hospital. And, and that was the mainstay of treatment for critically ill patients. Right. And many right. uh, patients' families... Uh, at least anecdotally, state that it was only when the mentisivir was administered that their patients took a turn, that their relatives took a turn for the worse. Right. right. But this idea that the WHO would recommend its use it, through consensus and human emphasis and the European Society of Critical Care agree and the NIH and CDC be willfully blind to the WHO's recommendation on not to use it. Willfully blind. Never discuss this. Never bring it up for a second discussion, never hold a Bethesda conference, and have our CMS continue to give a 20% bonus on the entire hospital stay mm-hmm. if hospitals use remdesivir, a drug that's contraindicated according to the WHO. These are stunning developments. When you mention the word controversy, it's almost as if you wanted to say that about hydroxychloroquine or ivermectin or me. Right. But isn't it clear now in this interview? That the controversy isn't me and these drugs. The controversy is what's going on with our federal agencies and with the pandemic response at that level. How can our federal agencies ignore a major statement from the WHO or at least not discuss it? Indeed. You know, I have to say that uh, in talking to you, uh, you are far more reasonable uh, than the reputation that precedes you because uh, you've been... uh, Tarred and feathered and stigmatized and uh, banned and but only and but ostracized. only tarred and feathered, but only tarred and feathered by anonymous fact checkers who are making uncredentialed claims on the internet. We don't even know who these people are. Mm-hmm. There isn't a single chief of medicine or division chief that said a word to me or a word about me. Not a single one. Isn't that staggering? It is indeed. Okay, so we're in part two, because we're going to pause for a moment. Uh, we're going to discuss uh, vaccines and uh, Operation Warp Speed, and especially in view of the current status of vaccines, which is not that great. 
with the advent of Omicron. Uh, the book is The Courage to Face COVID-19, Preventing Hospitalization and Death While Battling the Biopharmaceutical Complex. We're talking to co-author Peter McCullough, who with John Leake uh, wrote the book just out. I'm Dr. Ronald Hoffman, and this is the Intelligent Medicine Podcast.